Well, let's again take out our Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 29. And we will begin reading at verse 31 and read through chapter 30, verse 24. So, Genesis 29, 31, and then we'll read through uh, Genesis 30, 24. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And Jacob listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Ishkar. And Leah conceived again, 
and bore, she bore Jacob a sixth son. <clears throat> then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, now that you give us ears to hear the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. We ask, O God, that we may understand and have the truths of this passage applied to our lives. May the name of Jesus be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Well, when things are not going our way, human nature is then to take matters into our own hands. Because, well, if you're anything like me, most of us like to get what we want, don't we? If we want something, we will attempt to get that. And that temptation, the temptation to control matters in life, really began in the garden. Where the desire was to be like God, knowing good and evil. Most people want to have total control over their lives. And even as Christians, we struggle with this. We struggle with a desire for autonomy, a a desire for control, a desire to get what we want. But the reality is that we don't really have control. Not really, anyway. We make plans. We attempt to make plans. We try to change outcomes. But God is so sovereign over all things. God rules and overrules. God does as He pleases. Sometimes to our chagrin, perhaps. Now, throughout our study in Genesis, we've seen instances of God's providence over matters. We've seen where people aren't getting what they thought they wanted. We've seen human attempts to control the means and the ends. You and I may make plans in our heart for what we want to come to pass, but it is God who gives the answer. Man proposes God disposes. Now this lesson of God's control over all things is again on display in our study today. As both Leah and Rachel seek to win preeminence in the family. Leah wants to win the love of her husband. And Rachel wants to have children. Each being jealous of what the other has. While Jacob is reduced to being the husband for hire. When Jacob had arrived in Haran, you will remember that he was both single and penniless. Now here we find him with two wives, and each of these wives also have a handmaiden. Now over the remaining seven years of his contract, remember uh, he marries Rachel, but then is contracted to continue working for another seven years. Uh, During the remaining seven years of his contract, Jacob is now to build his family. And he has wives who are very anxious to do this very thing. 
And in the course of time, there will be 11 sons and one daughter born. Jacob is going to grow to have a full quiver. But this was not to happen without great difficulty. Now, what's driving the narrative throughout this are the birth of Jacob's sons. With each wife, Leah and Rachel, each hoping to win preeminence in the family by providing for Jacob the most sons. As each wife battles for control, the one uh, who should be the head seems to be the one who's most absent. Jacob allows himself to really become not much more than a pawn in this rivalry between wives. Each woman wanted what the other had. Rachel is the most loved wife. Leah is the most fertile wife. And so this becomes the object of their jealousy toward one another. But even as these women acted in an untoward manner toward one another, and even as Jacob sort of is, is lacking in leadership, in the end, God does seek to graciously ease each of their distress. God is so gracious and merciful to all parties here. Now to help orient ourselves to our passage, you'll note that, the, that our narrative is framed by two pregnancies. It's framed by two pregnancies. First, we see the opening of the unloved Leah's womb in chapter 29 and verse 31. And then this passage ends with the opening of barren Rachel's womb in chapter 30 and verse 22. So that, that sort of is the frame for the whole passage where in between is a lot of, a lot of sons born and a daughter as well. Everything in between is the growing rivalry. There's maneuvering between the two sisters. And each sister, along with Jacob, are experiencing emptiness and the agonizing pain. But even in the midst of all of that, God is providing comfort and hope. And the follower of the Lord is, like Jacob, in the process of sanctification. For Jacob, until his name is changed to Israel, he will continue to try and grasp for God's blessing through his own strength. You remember last week how he showed great strength in moving the rock. Everything is very physical for him. But his wives are doing the same. They're also grasping for blessing in their own strength. This period of time also seems to find Jacob both prayerless and emotionally absent. He's not leading his family spiritually. He had grown accustomed to using his physical prowess. In this way, Jacob is revealed to be spiritually impotent, doing only his part to provide his wives their sons. But Jacob is weak, and he would need to find his strength in the Lord. And so as we jump now into our passage, we see it begins with these words, When the Lord saw. Verse 31, when the Lord saw. Now this small phrase will set the tenor for this whole section, because it shows that the children which come, come by divine initiative. Even as the wives are scratching and clawing, as it were, to gain sons and to have the most sons, so they could have sort of superior, they could be the superior wife in the family. Children, it is made clear, children are gifts from the Lord. It is the Lord who is granting these children and these sons. 
And so in these first four verses, we see the first four births, or at least the first four sons of Leah. God saw that Leah was unloved by Jacob. Literally, the Hebrew is hated. She is hated. But God graciously gave her the firstborn child and gave to her half of Jacob's total sons. Among these sons will be the priestly line of Levi and the messianic line of Judah, two very significant tribes in the history of Israel and for redemptive history. These will come through Leah. In addition, uh, she's given, we see, a daughter born. And so there's other children which are born. In fact, Leah will have more children than the other three women combined. She has the perfect number of children, seven. Leah, though, was hated by Jacob. She was loved by God. Now, in Leah being hated, there is also a juxtaposition with the previous verse. Remember, Leah, or I'm sorry, rather, Rachel was said to be loved by Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel, but hated Leah. Now, this may be, as some suggest, what is called a rhetorical overstatement. In other words, Leah was not so much hated as we might conceive of hatred as just not preferred over Rachel. In other words, Jacob was emotionally absent towards Leah. Perhaps that is a form of hatred, though, isn't it? Just being sort of emotionally absent. She, he's not available for her. He's not meeting her much more than her physical needs. Jacob has an aversion to Leah, which we might say is, maybe it's fair. It might be understandable, though, though not excusable. But it might be understandable in light of what had transpired. You know, all things being equal, um, maybe he may not have really had an issue with Leah, but she had been foisted upon him by her father. And so he did not prefer her over his love, which was Rachel. In addition, Jacob could not divorce her because of the terms of the contract he had with Laban. And so there is, some, in some respects, Jacob is stuck with Leah. He didn't want her as a wife, and yet here she, here she is. Jacob perhaps feels imprisoned in a marriage which he didn't want. Thus was forced to endure. And so and Leah is, has to endure a loveless marriage. Nevertheless, though Jacob spectacularly fails as a husband toward Leah, God had compassion on her and thus opens her womb. So we read of the first son conceived and born, verse 32, uh, Reuben. Now Leah explains the significance of his name. Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Now Reuben's name literally means see a son or behold a son. And this is a clever acronym of see, ra'ah, and misery, ba'onyi. So the Lord looked upon Leah in her misery and gave her a son and her hope was that now, now Jacob will love me. The Lord has blessed me with a son and Jacob will now love me. He will no longer hate me. The first son, however, does not meet her objective. Uh, Jacob does not love 
his wife now because of this. She remains unloved by him. And so Leah conceives again and bears a son. And this son is named Simeon. And again, she gives the explanation. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me this son also. Now, Simeon's name is a play on the word here, Shema. We read the Shema earlier. It means to hear. The Lord has heard. Notice that the names of the first two sons replicate the verbs to see and to hear. The Lord has seen and given the son. The Lord has heard and given the son. The Lord has answered the prayer. Again, God is providentially caring for Leah. He has seen her affliction. He has heard and provided. Nevertheless, though God is caring for Leah, she's still frustrated by her husband's lack of love for her. She has the Lord's favor, but she does not have her husband's favor. And so again, another son is born, the third, and he's called Levi. And again, Leah explains the significance of the name. says, now, or at last, this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. She's struggling for the love of her husband. Maybe, maybe now with this third one, he will finally love me. He will be attached to me. Levi's name sounds like the word attached, lava in Hebrew. Levi's name will take on a greater theological significance as the tribe, the tribe of Levi will be attached to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Numbers 18, for example, outlines the Lord giving, giving of the ministry of the Ark and the tent of testimony to the tribe of Levi, the, the attached tribe. And finally, verse 35, we come to the last of the first four sons born to Leah. Now, perhaps by the fourth, Leah is resigned to her fate. Or perhaps she understood better and had grown to trust the Lord. In the naming of Judah, she departs from her earlier obsession with seeking her husband's love. The unloved wife has now transcended her affliction with the help of the Lord and has turned it into praise. Which is what the name Judah means. It means praise. And so again, Leah explains the name. This time, you know, here we are, the fourth son. This time, I will praise Yahweh. I will praise the Lord. No more. No more fighting for love. Now she will praise the one who provides all things. She will now praise the Lord. Now Jacob will later supplement the name of Judah by praising Judah himself. The child of praise will heal the family. It will become a source of blessing and reconciliation. It is through Judah that all the nations will one day be blessed because it is through that line. It is through the the line of Judah of which the one who is worthy of all praise would come. That is the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ would come through Judah the son who is called praise. We then read that Leah ceased bearing. Now, Moses doesn't explain to us why. Why why does Leah stop having children? It could be that she ceased from bearing children for a season because she had just had four children in very quick succession. I mean, 
just one after the other. That's a lot of pregnancy. Okay? So it could be that, you know, that she, her body just needed to rest from that. It also could be that Jacob withdrew his conjugal duties towards her. But whatever the case is, uh, the, time, the time will be brief because we read that she will bear again. But there was a period where she stops bearing children. Now Rachel sees all of this. She sees all of these children being born and she sees herself and she's barren. And so she envies her sister. If Leah's disgrace was being the foisted upon an unloved wife, Rachel's disgrace was that she was barren. And this was at the root of her jealousy. How could the pawned off wife receive the blessing of children and not her? I mean, you know, Leah wasn't even supposed to be the one. Both women want, wanted what the other had. Leah wanted love. Rachel wanted children. And so Rachel says to Jacob, really demands of Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Rachel does not quite appreciate that ultimately children are a blessing from the Lord. The heart of men plan his way, but the Lord establishes his steps, Proverbs 16.9 says. And so Jacob responds, and this this is right. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob's frustrated with Rachel. Do do you think I'm in control of you having children? He blames, uh, well, she's blaming him for all of her problems, but Jacob can't supplement or supplant rather the Lord's will any more than she can. Because it is the Lord who gives children. Nevertheless, this this does not stop Rachel from taking matters into her own hands. This is much like Sarah did, isn't it? So she she gave her uh, maidservant Bilhah as a surrogate. And in this way, Rachel figures that she'll get the children for her own heritage. Because any child born to her servant would be literally placed on her knee. Which is to say that the child would be welcome and legitimate and would belong to her, would belong to Rachel. And so like his grandfather Abraham, who went along with Sarah's scheme to have a son through Hagar, Jacob takes Bilhah as a concubine and they have a son and his name was Dan. Now Rachel was determined to have sons of her own but even these will not really satisfy her. Because although they're legitimate children they're not really hers. Not really. So she's really not going to be satisfied. But she does explain the significance of Dan's name. God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Now Dan is a phonetic way of expressing vindicated, to be vindicated. This son's birth to Rachel was not merely a blessing from the Lord. This was justice. Justice has come because this child is born. In her mind, God had viewed her case and had proven her right and her struggle against her fertile sister, who, if anything, is trying to steal her husband's love away by exploiting her infertility. And so this is at least how she views the matter. 
Rachel then gave Bilhah again. And a second son is produced. Verse 8, Naphtali. With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Now you might have already guessed that his name means mighty wrestlings or great struggle. Literally, she admits that she had struggles of God. That is with the mighty, what is translated mighty, struggles of God. We actually could translate the passage this way. In my struggles with God, I have struggled with my sister and have prevailed. Rachel is sure that she's fighting on two fronts. She's fighting against Leah, but foremost, she's fighting against God. The Lord had opened Leah's womb and had not seen been pleased to open her womb. But she's winning this battle. She's winning the battle for her husband's affections through now her maidservant. She's taking matters into her own hands. Her struggle with Leah was a struggle for the favor of, of Jacob and for God's favor as well. Now Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children. This, again, looks back at uh, chapter 29, verse 35, which also, again, shows that these children are probably being born contemporaneously and not necessarily successively, which is to say that there is overlap in some of these pregnancies of these various women. Genesis is not presenting their birth order per se, although this will be the typical order in which they're presented later on in the scriptures. When Leah, though, had stopped bearing children, there's now a risk that Rachel could overtake her. And this could not be. And so, what does she do? Well, you know, if it worked for Rachel, I'll do the same thing. She gets her servant, Zilpah, to Jacob. And she bore a son, and he's called Gad. And his name comes from Leah's exclamation. Good fortune has come. Be Gad is the Hebrew term. This is good fortune. That's his name. And then Zilpah again bears a second son, and he's called Asher, which means happy. Happy am I, for women have called me happy. Leah is happy. For it seems, at least for the moment, it seems she is winning the battle. Now verse 14. The narrative begins to slow down. And we're introduced to additional children which Leah bears. It is here that we read of Leah's oldest son, Reuben, who, while in a wheat field, found some mandrakes and brought them to his mother, Leah. Now, mandrakes are sometimes called love apples in the ancient world. They are a plant of the Mediterranean region, which is in the nightshade family, uh, like potatoes and tomatoes and peppers. It's in that same family. When they're pulled out of the ground, the root uh, resembles a human form. And so they were considered to be an aphrodisiac in the ancient world. Reuben, having found them in a wheat field during the harvest, probably indicates he wasn't necessarily looking for them. He wasn't like on this hunt for mandrakes. He just so happened to find them. And so he brings them to his mom. Now when Rachel hears about this, she asks for some of them. And we presume that this is because she probably hoped that they would aid her in her own quest for her own son. Notice 
that although Rachel had tempered her request with a bit of diplomacy, she, she says please. She is sharply rebuked by Leah. Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take all away my son's mandrakes also? So Leah, I mean, the charges are just put out there, right? Leah has charged Rachel with attempting to steal her husband. That's bad enough. Now you want to take food from my kid? Rachel, as the preferred wife, had captured Jacob's heart and affection. But she's not looking to steal anything, and so she changes her tactic. Instead, she proposes a trade. Verse 15. Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Now, what a trade, right? It is a curiosity, though. As the favored wife, does Rachel have the privilege of deciding who gets to sleep with Jacob on any given night? And we don't know the answer to that question. But we do know this, that like their father Laban, the sisters made the marriage relationship to be transactional. Leah would give some of the mandrakes to Rachel in exchange for a night with Jacob. And Leah accepts the trade, as if this was truly in their power to make. And she doesn't even wait for Jacob to come home fully. She actually goes out and meets him. You must come in to me. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. I've paid for you, Jacob. Jacob is not acting as the patriarch. He has now been lowered into being a pawn between these two scheming women. And Leah's words are very straightforward. Surely I have hired you. Jacob, who had been nothing more than a hired hand to his father-in-law, Laban, is now simply a hired hand in his own home, in his own bed. Jacob, whose, effect, who, uh, whose affections these women wanted, has sunk to the point of really being dehumanized. And we might even say objectified. And Jacob here is not a shining example of leadership as the patriarch of Israel. He is now being pimped out by his wives. And Proverbs 12.4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Jacob's wives, as they battle for supremacy in the family, had not been a crown to Jacob. But they had brought rottenness to his bones. Jacob had become inept. He had become nothing more than a hired hand who seems here to be helpless to even challenge Leah. He doesn't even say, what do you mean you've hired me? There's so much sin going around between these three, isn't there? There's a lot of sin between all of them. One commentator uh, notes that this was actually the fourth commercial exchange in Jacob's life. He exchanged the birthright for lentil stew. He'd exchanged the blessing for food. He'd exchanged wives. And now he, he, was, he himself is exchanged husband as sex for hire. And so Jacob lay with Leah. And, again, God is so gracious, right? 
The Lord listened to Leah, and she bore Jacob a fifth son, Issachar. And Leah says in verse 18, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. God rewarded Leah for her hire, and her pun uh, sums up Jacob's lack of leadership, but also God's grace. That God listened to Leah clarifies that it is God who superintended the pregnancy, not the mandrakes. And Leah agrees with this. And notice too, there's a reference to the fifth son, which distinguishes her natural children from that of her servant. Leah is also of the opinion that God was rewarding her for having given her maidservant to Jacob. Leah recognized God's hand in the childbirth, even if she had a skewed understanding of God's purposes, which his purposes were not there to help her win, but to show mercy upon two struggling women and to establish the 12 tribes of a burgeoning nation. And so we read again, Leah gives birth now to the sixth, her sixth and final son, verse 20. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. This son is called Zebulun, which has the meaning of endowment. Leah acknowledges that children are a gift and a heritage from the Lord. And her hope was that now her husband will exalt her and honor her as the legal wife, the true wife. Because she has given to him six sons. She made a very similar statement after the first, after the first three. Later, verse 21 also notes a daughter is born named Dinah. And we can presume that She was not born necessarily during this seven year, but she uh, is born sometime later. But Dinah is the only daughter named in the genealogy. And of course, she's going to play an important role later on in the narrative. Well, finally, after waiting many, many years, Rachel also has sons of her own. Our text had begun with the opening of Leah's womb. The section now ends with Rachel's womb being opened. And again, this provides the frame or bookmark. Verse verse 22, God remembered Rachel. Again, this small phrase signals the reversal of the situation. God had seen the unloved Leah. And now he remembers barren Rachel. In remembering her, it is made clear that Rachel is a daughter of the covenant. She's a daughter of the covenant by virtue of her marriage to the covenant heir, Jacob. And God was to remove her disgrace. And both she uh, and the text itself attribute Joseph's birth not to the, uh, to the mandrakes, but to the Lord. God has taken away my reproach, she says. It is the Lord who has done this. No longer will Rachel have the social stigma of childlessness. And so she names her son with an expression of her faith and God's merciful generosity. And in receiving Joseph, she also prays, May the Lord add to me another son. This, of course, is a foreshadow of the birth which is yet to come, Benjamin. So now with these children born, 
The narrative of Jacob will turn toward home as he will seek to return to Canaan with his wives and his children. Although more time will have to pass still. The family history ends, though, with an anticipation of the future. Another son to be born, many daughters will be born as well. The many offspring which will populate the nation. Now, Joseph's name means, may he add. It's very fitting, isn't it? May he add. God will indeed add to the covenant family. God will indeed add to the covenant kingdom. As we reflect on this family, and and then we reflect on our own lives too, it's easy to forget God's sovereignty in life, isn't it? Particularly when things aren't going our way. We forget that it is God who provides all blessings. When we suffer, when we face trial, when we aren't getting what we think is rightly ours, we forget that God is in control of these things, don't we? We read in James that there is a blessing which comes with trial. For one, as we endure suffering and the misery of this life, God uses that to build our faith. James, in fact, writes this, Blesses a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. These two women were experiencing the trials of life, weren't they? Lack of love, barrenness. Both were afflicted in their own ways. But God is working all things out for good. For those who love Him are called according to His purposes. The providences of God, even the difficult providences of God, and many of us experience difficult providences, don't we? Even the difficult ones serve God's purposes. We may not always understand. We don't understand in the moment, certainly. We may not ever understand what God's purposes were for our suffering. Nevertheless, We can trust in the Lord. If you're trusting and resting in Christ for your salvation, believing that He indeed has died for your sins, that He was raised again so that you may have life, if you are comforted that you are not your own, but belong body and soul to your faithful Savior Jesus Christ, if you truly believe that He is faithful, that He is caring for you, that He has saved you, then why can you not trust Him with the other things in your life as well? I say that to you. I I have to ask myself that question. If God can save me from the big things like my sin, why why am I worried about all these little things that that I fight over, struggle to get my way on? Why must we take matters into our own hands all the time? Perhaps when we don't trust God with the small things, it indicates the weakness in our faith. The God who sovereignly brought about the coming of our Savior is able to guide you through all the difficulties and miseries of this life, can't He? You and I perhaps need to pray the prayer of Matthew chapter 9. I believe, help my unbelief. May, May our God, by His Word and Spirit, strengthen your faith in Him. 
May you trust that He is good to His people, that He will take care of your needs, and that He will bring glory to Him Himself. May you glorify Him now and eternally. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how You indeed do care for us, even when things aren't going our way, even when we're suffering in the miseries of this life, even where we're in trials. And Help us, O oh God, Strengthen our faith. Help our unbelief. Help us to know and trust that you are working all things together for the good of your people, for your glory. May we give you all praise in all of these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.